Hello, welcome to Rational Investing. My name is Cameron Stewart, CFA. Thank you for watching the channel and listening to the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. This week up, we're going to take a look at AIG, the insurance behemoth. Um, I've printed out their most recent Q4 results, 62 pages of the most, the absolute most dense financial literature uh, you could possibly uh, want to undertake. If you have trouble sleeping, I highly recommend printing this off and reading it. You will be out by page five. Uh, I've gone through it uh, to the best of my ability and tried to discern how much cash this business makes. We're going to go through the numbers and figure out should we buy this stock or not? How much is it worth today? What do we think it's going to be worth in 10 years? We bought it now and held it on. Ready? Let's get to work. AIG was part of the financial fiasco of 2008. Uh, it's gone through kind of a restructuring. It's got a new president and uh, chairman, Peter Zafino. Uh, he recently started uh, as president and uh, chairman and chief executive officer, excuse me, not president, chairman and chief executive officer. He came from a company called Marshall. I wanted to see what he did there first to figure out uh, what his track record looked like. It was kind of impressive, actually. So if we take a look, at the company, uh, Marshall McLean uh, Company is another insurance company that he was president and CEO of from 2011 to 2017. And fortunately, that company's public, and we can look at its performance during his tenure. Uh, rather impressive, actually. So here is roughly 2011 uh, when he is somewhere taking over. The price is around $27, $28. And I would say it'd give him a couple, a year or so for his decisions to be impacting the business and reflected in the stock market. But over that period of time from 2011 to 2017, the business grew to about, call it $80 a share from $28. Uh, that's definitely the direction we wanna go. Uh, that's more than, that's almost tripling, kind of more than doubling in a uh, six year time frame, which bodes well for his ability to lead an insurance company. Now, as chairman now of AIG, he is definitely making moves and he is all over the annual reports, uh, probably for good reason. So part of your understanding of this business, I think is diving into this individual and believing that he can turn the ship, get this business going in the right direction and clean up a lot of the um, their portfolio that they have of, of, of assets and liabilities. Now let's take a look at the quarterly results in the full year for 2022 for AIG. Behind me is their PowerPoint presentation that they released, kind of the full color glossy version of it. And I wanna pull out a couple snippets just to give you an idea of what this business is doing. Um, net income for common stockholders for 2022 year was 10.2 billion dollars. That's net income for common stockholders. Uh, they make a lot of money, that is for sure. Uh, return on common equity, this ROCE number, uh, I'll use the adjusted one because of some, some anomalies, 6.5%. So return on common equity for 2022 is 6.5%. Uh, not a shining number, not a number that they want to tout. And it's something they are working on to improve. We'll get there in a second. Uh, they're also IPOing CoreBridge uh, subdivision as uh, the chairman, Peter, begins to clean up the assets. He is selling off assets or investment pieces to uh, third parties. In this case, IPOing a subdivision. Uh, I think they got uh, $80 million at the initial IPO and they'll continue to, um, uh, excuse me, $80 billion, 
uh, at the initial IPO, and there's a couple other segments. I think it's a three-part deal that they're going to do. So they, they completed this largest IPO in 2022. They've got another one coming up in 2023 where they take another third of the stock that they own in this company and IPO it. And that's affecting their balance sheet a little bit as they as they sell off assets. It, it's clouding the income statement as they recognize the gain from that sale. And that's why you see these return on common equity 21% and then the adjusted return on common equity 6.5% because the, the high 21% includes the one-time gain from the sale on the stock. Overall, however, this business is an insurance beast. Their general insurance is the largest piece of their business uh, and it's generally uh, is, is doing around 10% return on common equity for this division. We can get into it later. Then they have the life insurance business with a slightly less return, 8.8%. Now, there's some general statistics that we can talk through, as, and, and what you're going to see here is a lot of trend work that they do in their, um, in their annual and quarterly numbers to show the progress of the turnaround of the company or the improved operating performance of the company. So this is general un underwriting insurance uh, income in billions, and it's going for, from losses in 16, 17, and 18, so losing $5.6 billion, losing 4.5 billion and losing 3.1 billion. Now fast forward to actually gaining 1.1 billion in 2021 and gaining or making $2 billion in 2022. So it's a nice kind of upward trajectory. They're trying to call that out and they're, and they're saying, hey, this is a $7 billion improvement in the general insurance underwriting income from 2016 to 2022, which is actually very impressive. Additionally, the gross limits, the, the amount of insurance that they're out on the hook for is coming down 2.4 billion to 1.2 billion as they kind of curtail their, their portfolio of, uh, of coverage. Again, the, the numbers continue to improve slowly. Uh, this is general insurance accident year combined. So this is a ratio of how much kind of accidents they have relative to the amount of assets that they're covering. You want that to come down. You can see it's gone from 101% in uh, the Q2 of 18 and has steadily decreased to 88.4% in Q4 of 22, a very slow and kind of deliberate um, improvement of the underwriting portfolio. Uh, the same thing is true for the global lines of accident coverage. Uh, again, following the pattern of, hey, look at us, we are slowly cleaning up our portfolio, improving the credit quality of the underlying assets, and hopefully, hopefully gaining a little bit of cash on the, uh, on the premiums that, uh, that this company charges and the assets, the cash that they hold on the balance sheet waiting for the liabilities to come in. So speaking of the assets they hold, it's quite a lot. $280 billion is their investment portfolio. And that's obviously made up of assets that they've taken or deposits they've taken in for insurance policies that they have underwritten and future claims they may have to pay. For example, ins life insurance, you will pay life insurance premiums your entire life and your payout is only after you perish. So as a result, they get that cash for many, many, many years and have some sort of future liability that they're guessing at what the value of that or the cost of that liability is gonna be out 20 years. And in the meantime, they're trying to make a few dollars on the premiums that you pay them over time, knowing that a liability is coming out, say 10, 20, 
30 years from now. This balance sheet is mostly corporate debt. You can see $123 billion of the $280 billion, roughly 45% of it is corporate debt. Uh, the rest of it's kind of mortgage, mortgage-backed securities, and government bonds. Um, I would think that the corporate debt here I'd be a little concerned about. I hope their underwriting is good, that they're not over-leveraged, they're not in over-leveraged companies. But overall, I think the, this, the, this is interesting. We have a rising interest rate environment, and over the last decade, interest rates have been so low, uh, companies, banks, insurance companies that run on a spread by, by taking the float that they have here, investing it, and making a few percent extra on that, um, they have struggled because interest rates have been so low, they weren't able to get enough or, or very much um, income out of that, that portfolio. Well, that's changing. I just saw a sign the other day that said a six-month CD is paying 4%. So now you can get kind of short-term guaranteed money on a CD from a, from a traditional bank at 4%. Uh, these, this portfolio of two point, uh, excuse me, $280 billion over time should be able to roll over and, and, and benchmark at a new higher interest rate. And that should improve their uh, net income over time. The other thing that they are doing is they are buying back a tremendous amount of their own stock. It seems like they're feverishly going after it. In Q4 of 2021, so last two years ago, Q4, they bought back 17 million shares or 2% of the stock in one quarter. The following quarter, Q1 of 22, they bought back 23 million shares or 2.9% of the outstanding stock. The following quarter, 3.7% in one quarter. And after that, 3.1%. These are astounding numbers. You would expect a number like this would be high for a single year, let alone a quarter, let alone each quarter within the last five quarters. Uh, and then Q4, they bought back 1.7% of the stock. It's absolutely astronomical. They are paying $60, which is where the stock is currently, uh, for the stock. And they are absolutely gobbling it up. And they're saying, hey, look, there's an adjusted book value of common stock here that's about $70 a share. They're buying it at 60. They think that's truly inherent value. And they're absolutely gobbling up their own stock. Uh, it, it, it's very impressive, uh, the strategy. All right, let's take a look at their capital structure. Uh, there's something on the structure that we'll get into in a little bit. It's called the um, accumulated other comprehensive income. It's a long, uh, it's a long uh, word, series of words, AOCI, and it's all throughout here. And what is AOCI? Well, it's, it's basically an expense that is not expensed. Normally, you'd have an expense, you'd put on in the income statement, you would lower your net income. Um, accumulated other comprehensive income is one of those line items that um, uh, is, is kind of funny accounting. And it basically takes an expense and goes right to the equity portion of the balance sheet. So you would adjust your asset down, and normally you'd write, write off in the income statement, and that income statement decline would show up in your retained earnings on your, on your equity statement as a reduction. Here, you kind of skip the income statement, you go straight down and put a negative number in the equity section of the balance sheet, and it's, it's, it's an expense 
that is represented on the balance sheet but is not shown on the income statement until some future date when they believe that his that, uh, that, that, that expense has been realized and needs to hit the income statement. So what they're doing here is they have a giant charge, a giant decrease of about $22 billion last year, an increase in other comprehensive uh, income that did not hit the income statement. You're gonna see their income is gonna be way high, their net income is gonna be way high in 2022, uh, mainly because this drop going from positive 3.9 to a negative 19, which is what a $23 billion swing did not hit the income statement. The majority of this uh, $19 billion change sits in the life insurance category of their business. So I, I'm guessing, and I'm, by no means am I an insurance expert, and I would I would love any comments in the, down below if I'm wrong here, but I'm guessing this is a mismatch between the assets and liabilities that they have. So they've got assets for premiums that they've taken in, and they've got a portfolio value, a dollar value here, and they've got a, a future liability of people who have who have written or have paid for life insurance policies, and that policy liability is more than the assets they hold. But because they have the, the customer hasn't died yet, they don't have to pay out the uh, the insurance policy. So it's it's not an actual loss that they've ref that they're reflecting in the income statement. It's a loss they're adjusting on the balance sheet and hoping that over time, a that person lives longer than th than scheduled, so their the premiums continue to come in. Or b, AIG can make a higher earnings over time on those premiums to offset that differential. I think that's what this represents. I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. Do you add it back, which is what they do? Do you get rid of it and mark to market? Um, it's, I think it's up to a guess, and, and I, frankly, I'm not big enough on insurance companies to know exactly what to do, but we'll take a look at it. I just wanna call it out because this is a really, really big, chunky number. One of the final objectives that Peter Rufino uh, is trying to do is boost the uh, return on common equity or the return on equity for the investors of AIG. And if you recall, their current uh, return is basically single digits. They have a return on their life insurance business, uh, the, or excuse me, the general insurance business, which is about 10%. And then the rest of their portfolio, the life and retirement is 8.8%. Plus you have some other operating costs that as a result, their 2022 year was only 6.5%. So they are squarely in this single digit return on common equities um, uh, place. And they're trying to do a couple different things to boost that. They want to improve the underwriting results, which I showed you earlier, which was the slow decline of the, uh, the loss ratios, which is excellent. It, it, expense savings as they're selling off divisions, they're reorganizing the division that they wanna keep for, to have greater, tighter control with maybe fewer people, and they're buying back shares, all of which should give them 300 to 400 basis points, that's basically three to 4% on that 6.5% uh, return on common equity number they posted before, should bring them then to double digits, basically 10%, right on the cusp, uh, and then maybe get a little bit of tailwind from investments at higher rates of return, you pick up another one to 
uh, annually. I'm just going to put this stock in the low double-digit return on common equity arena. If you could buy it at a discount like you can today, in, according to them, right, their book value at 70 and they're buying it at 60, uh, then you can kind of expand that return as you got it, you, you bought something at a discount. Okay, let's take a look at the net income, the revenue, uh, the shares outstanding for this stock and kind of get an understanding before we forecast what to do. Now, I normally on any uh, one of the stocks that we review, we do a five key attributes where we review top line revenue growth needs to be growing, EBITDA needs to be growing, strong free cash flow, low debt and well priced. Those are our five key attributes. However, banks and insurance companies are different animals and you can't use EBITDA for a bank, they don't report it, excuse me, for a bank or an insurance company. They don't report it and, it's, and you shouldn't calculate it. You really, the insurance companies, banks, they're driven off of net income and they're driven off of book value. So that's what we're gonna use. We're gonna use net income and we're gonna use book value. So let's take a look here. So revenue, revenue has been declining over the last nine years. So 2014, revenue was 63.5 billion and that fell to 58 billion. 51 billion, 49 billion, and 47 and a half billion is kind of the the, the bottoming. Uh, maybe it gets a little lower. 40, 49 billion, and then 43 billion is the bottom of revenue in 2020. So from 2024 to 2020, revenue slowly declined. Over the last couple of years, however, it's gone up, and maybe maybe that's because Peter Zafino has taken over. His management style has come through. It takes you know, time for the new person to get in place, understand the business, start making changes. Those changes take effect, and then those effects report in the results, certainly the full year results. So I think it's reasonable to give him a couple years um, kind of grace period to see the results. And then what you see is after the bottoming at 2000, 2000 of $43 billion, it has grown to $52 billion. That's a $10 billion lift in a year and up to 56 billion, a $4 billion lift, four and a half billion last year. So what do you do? Technically, by our standards, long-term, because we're long-term investors, we wanna see long-term trends to smooth out accounting ambiguity, to smooth off one-time changes or bumps because he sold a division and got some revenue. You know, we wanna look at long period of time. Technically, it's declining. However, the last three years, and with new leadership, and that leader has a successful track record at a previous company, it's very interesting to see a pattern starting to emerge. Food for thought. Net income. So this is net income available to common stock owners, um, and it excludes both the preferred dividend that they kick out to the deferred dividend and the other comprehensive income that I set before that sits on the balance sheet. It does not hit the income statement. Again, comment down below if I'm wrong. I'm no insurance expert by any means, but this is my attempt after reading uh, nearly 60 pages of mind-numbingly boring work. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. It, it, they, they, the sheets look like this. This is, this is every, single, every single page of this document looks like this as they break down their income statement, their balance sheet. They do it by segments, so general liability, life insurance, their uh, reinvestment insurance business. Uh, it, is, it is quite the beast to go through. Um, and I found many things that I couldn't really tie out that, that I'd have a question on uh, and I'd, I'd dig a layer deeper and there's no footnote that explains what else is in that number. Um, so I kind of ran into some issues. But 
If you have any comments, throw them down below. I'm happy to take them. Uh, let's take a look at net income. Net income, uh, $7.5 billion when they made $63 billion in, um, in 2014. Let's do a quick margin here so we can just get a, get a load of... Uh, a load of what the margin was. So that's a 12% net income margin for uh, for the business in 2014. 2015, they made $2.2 billion on 58. Then they lost. They lost $350 million. Then they lost $6 billion. Uh, I guess, I'm guessing that's when the board of directors started looking for Peter. Uh, you went from, in, in these four years, you went from $63 billion of revenue making $7.5 billion and a 12% margin down to losing $6 billion on $50 billion, a negative 12 margin. Uh, then it zeroes out, so zero margin, and starts to, it starts to improve. 2019, they made $4 billion on 49, or call it 50, that's an 8% margin. 2020, uh, pandemic year, it's kind of an anomaly, I'll put that off. They lost $5.8 billion on $43 billion of, of revenue. However, they rebounded strongly. So uh, they got $9.9 billion of net income in 2021 off of $52 billion of revenue for a 19% margin uh, business. And then most recently, $11 billion of net income the highest net income in the last nine years, uh, and a, certainly a huge jump year over year from 9.9 uh, .9 to 11.2 on 56. That's a 20% net income margin. Now, I will say that that net income does include some, some proceeds from the sale of the IPO. It includes some sales of assets, which may or may not be repeatable. Uh, you, you know, a business can only sell assets for so long that they have no assets left. So, so selling assets and boosting earnings short term is not a great strategy. Um, and it's hard to pull out all of that, um, all, of, all of the one-time items from each of these historically. So what I'll typically do is average the last couple of years net income and then take that out going forward. But I think this is interesting. Again, the patterning continues of improved revenue, improved earnings, improved margin under new leadership. Now let's take a look at shares outstanding. <clears throat> shares outstanding is very interesting. Shares outstanding earlier in the decade, 1.448 billion shares. And that has very steadily declined to 788 million shares or an average of 7.3% drop annually. Uh, that's an incredible number. We see very few, very few stocks in this channel that have anywhere anything above 5%, let alone 7%. That's, that's an average um, buyback of 7% every single year for nine years. That's, that's an incredible number. So they're at 788 million shares that's standing right now. They're continuing to buy them up. I think that's really, um, really very interesting for us. You could, uh, you know, stocks that retire... 60, 70, 80% of outstanding shares over, say, a 20-year time frame tend to outperform the market. Uh, there's a lot of research on it, and, uh, and, and those are stocks you really want to uh, try to pay attention to. Uh, what this has done with both the retirement of shares and the rebounding of earnings, it has taken earnings per share uh, and actually blown it through the roof. So they, they had $14 per share earnings net income uh, last year. Prior to that, it was 11 
uh, you know, go earlier in the decade before that decline. So in 2014, it was only $5.20. Uh, they stumbled for several years, went negative. Then it kind of bottomed at zero, like I said, uh, in 2018. And it's, it's really rocketed up as they have executed on the strategy that it went for earlier of cost savings, cleaning up their uh, insurance portfolio, and then buying back shares, kind of executing on the vision that was in that document. And they're producing a $14 um, earnings per share. Price per share, they're at 63 bucks as of last fiscal year. That's just December last year, uh, which an earnings yield of 22%. That's a very, very strong earnings yield. Um, you know, you don't you don't see companies that trade quite like that. So perhaps this is a little inflated because some some sale proceeds. Maybe it comes down. Maybe now they're not fourteen. Maybe they're back to ten or so. But that's still a very very strong earnings number for a stock that's in the sixties. Let's take a look at the book value of this company. So insurance companies and banks, you want to look at book value, uh, not uh, not enterprise value. Why why is this? Because Banks and insurance companies, part of their product is cash. You think of a bank, you walk into a bank, you deposit your money in their bank, they record it on their books, but it's not their money, it's your money. Same thing with an insurance company. You give them insurance uh, premiums, they hold them, they invest them, but it's your money that you're gonna be paid back eventually. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to just differentiate what debt, what liability is bank debt and what debt is an obligation of a receipt of funds that needs to be paid out in the future. That ambiguity makes it hard to, 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 to really calculate an enterprise value. So it's not really used in, those, in these industries. We use book value. Book value, total assets, less total liabilities and preferred stock. Don't forget to subtract the preferred stock to get the book value of common stockholder equity. This is where I find, this is where I spent an hour combing through this data and I really ultimately got a little lost. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a very complex business uh, and this document is very, very dense. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not an investor in insurance companies because it's, it's very hard to, um, to really understand the business if you don't work in it. And this is why. Uh, book value, 2014. Uh, book value, $100 billion. They have $515 billion of assets in 2014. And they had total outstanding liabilities and common stock of $400 billion. I'm rounding here. To give you $100 billion, um, a $100 billion book value. And if I follow that pattern and I look into the future, Total assets uh, are roughly flat over this nine years. So 515 billion comes down to 496, 498, 498, 491, 525, 586, 596, and 526. So 526 billion dollars of assets in 2022. Liabilities have gone up a whole lot. 408 billion to 422, 458, 519 in 2020, the pandemic year, and then 484 last year. What that means is assets have grown at 9%, liabilities at 2.5%, and book value, book value, total book value, not book value per share, total book value by a very simplistic 
total assets, less liabilities and common stock um, has declined. And I'm not adjusting for uh, goodwill or intangibles. I'm just looking at this for a second. 100 billion of book value to $41 billion of book value. Uh, it seems like most of this drop was in the first couple years as the um, as the portfolio and net income was falling. They lost $40 billion of book value in four years. Between 2014 and 2017, book value went from $100 billion to $65 billion. And since then, it's been fairly flat, uh, maybe growing slightly, with the exception of last year. $41 billion, this $41 billion, a drop of nearly $27 billion in a single year is mostly that adjustment of accumulated other comprehensive income that hits the book value. Uh, and again, I'm not too sure what to do with this. You're going to see me add it back in a second. But it is a liability, excuse me, it is a cost that was not expensed. It is a real adjustment. It's just, I guess, a matter of do you believe in the future that that, that debt is going to come due? Or will the person live longer? Or will uh, AIG be able to generate more funds, more income off of their investment portfolio to offset that loss and not have to realize it? But what I, what I did is because of this, I went through and looked at the adjusted book value for um, AIG for the, as many years as I could could find. And I went all the way back to 2016, uh, and I used the adjustment they used to adjust this book value that I have here to be more in line with what they have. And I can only look at it between 2016 and 2022. And basically, all it does is it softens the drop that we experienced last year. Instead of a drop of $20 billion year over year last year, the drop is basically a billion dollars, one single billion, from $55 billion of book value, adjusted book value, to $49.5 billion of adjusted book value. And I, I'm not sure if this is Peter, um, you know, using his influence over the company to reshape how, um, how the CFO and accounting think and are willing to treat adjustments. Remember, adjustments are not gaps. So adjustments, adjusted book values management, pushing through their, uh, their narrative onto the gap numbers. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. Is he doing it because this is an accurate reflection of the ongoing business activity? Or is he doing it because he wants to affect how the market perceives his stock to boost his stock that he owns? Not sure. Uh, I do like that his track record at his last company showed a stock price, at least, that was moving higher uh, I, for, for many, many, many years, uh, which, which gives me some um, confidence that what he's doing is trying to affect uh, the, the, the lens with which you view the company so that that lens mirrors actual normalized operations and not a manipulated uh, operating statistic. But this basically says that net income here declined sharply and then has somewhat stabilized the last several years. So if, if book value stabilized, they're buying back shares aggressively, they can show an increase in book value per share. Right? And so you get that right here. 
book value per share the last several years has gone from $50 in 2020 as a low to $59 to $62 a share. And that's where they're buying back stock, continually saying that, hey, this is still undervalued. They believe that they should continue to buy back stock um, and, 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 and continue to boost the, uh, uh, the value of this business by buying those stocks back. Uh, finally, uh, that I've got the, the market cap and the book value per share. So market cap shares outstanding times price. I divide book value by market cap and I get a price to book ratio less than one. And they're basically trading at one times book value right now, which I think is a reasonable book value ratio. Let's forecast this business. The first thing we need to forecast is book value. That's the driver of value uh, for one measure. And we're going to pick up last year's book value and we're going to grow it 3% to $51 billion. And I've used 3% annually for the next decade as a low-end gauge of what they can do because I just don't know. Historically, their book value growth rate is negative, right? Dropped from $100 billion to $50 billion. That's negative. However, recently it's stabilized and net income is going higher. Margins are growing. That's going to translate to a higher book value. They also have um, increased interest rates, which means they can reinvest this, this, the float, the $280 billion at a higher interest rate, which should help book value by growing net income. So I do think that they can, or at least I'm cautiously optimistic that they can hit 3%. Maybe they can do a bit more, but I wanted to pick 3%. So that says this 51 billion turns into 66 billion. I use one times book value as the market value benchmark, which I think is fair. They're currently at 1 billion, so no, no market multiple expansion here. That means 66.5 billion of, of equity value divided by the shares, and I get a long-term uh, price target of $84.43 for AIG, assuming no more share, share buybacks, that they just dividend out all the money to the investors. Now let's forecast with earnings per share. And earnings per share, I have used a four-year average. As you can see over here, uh, earnings per share has changed has, has, has changed dramatically over the last four years from being $4.69 to minus $6.71 during the pandemic to rebounding to $11.43 up to a high of $14.31. I don't trust the 14 because they did an IPO and received $80 billion of extra income as a result. So I think that number's uh, buoyed by one-time items. The same type of thing happened in 2021. So I'm gonna average the last four years to give me kind of a guess of a range that I think they can fall in at any given year and then take that and grow it uh, the same rate we're growing book value at 3% a year. And I go from $5.94 per share of earnings to $7.75. And I give it a 10% uh, market market yield. Uh, and it, that, that results in a $77.52 price target out 10 years for AIG. Okay, so let's take a look at this business. Now we can look in the stock market. As I indicated earlier, stock's currently trading at $60 a share. I've got two price targets. I've got a net income per share. I've got a book value per share. I'll average the two and call it 80 bucks. I have no idea where the stock's gonna go. This is not a promise in any shape or form. I'm certainly no expert in insurance companies. It's just me personally, late at night, combing through 60 pages of documents because, well, I just do it anyways. I might as well film an episode. So. Um, 
I put a number out there. Please, please uh, do your own due diligence. Read through this deck of the four, Q4 and let me know if I've missed something on this other accumulated um, net income. But I've got a price target out there of uh, $80. If I put this into an IRR calculator, I say, hey, these are the earnings per share. Let's just assume that I dividend them all out. There's no more share buybacks because I can't forecast at what price they would buy the shares back. So I'm going to say, hey, dividend all the shares out for simplicity. I buy it at 60. I'm out at 80. And I make 15% of my money every single year for 10 years. Not too bad for an insurance company with a single digit return on invested capital or a return on common equity right now. I think you can buy the stock at a discount. Uh, they get some margin improvement. They get a little growth under the new leadership. And lo and behold, you got a company that's, that's outperforming the stock market uh, with a very kind of conservative 3% growth forecast. So we would normally review the five key attributes at this point, but I'm not gonna do it because this business doesn't really fit our standard mold. I just wanna show you a different example of what an insurance company uh, looks like, and I'm going to give it two ratings. Um, I'm going to give it a good because recently I think the data is pointing in the right direction, and I think with a simple growth forecast, you can outperform the market. I'm also going to give it a meh because I don't know much about insurance companies. Um, certainly enough to feel like I truly understand the business to where I'm going to put money to work in it. Um, it's incredibly complex to understand all the nuances and the financial assumptions around asset and liability matching. Um, and so as, as a result for me, I'm going to look for a, a simpler business, but I did enjoy reading through some of the material and trying to figure out how this business is underwritten. I hope you like this review of AIG. Very interesting business. Uh, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts and comments on if you like this, uh, this type of stock. If you want to learn more about how to value companies, I do teach a course. I'd highly recommend checking out my website, cashflowinvestingpro.com, where you can take my financial course. It's three hours of, of, of content, uh, six units that I go through. I give you an Excel sheet. We walk through Apple, and I help you value and understand Apple, how to read the financial statements, how to forecast, how to think about building a portfolio of, say, 20 to 30 stocks that you truly believe in and that you've built forecasts for and watch those companies um, over time. Right? The best way to build wealth, in my opinion, is to own single-name stocks and own them for 20 or 30 years. You hold them for a very, very long time. You cannot buy a stock and expect to flip it in a year or two or three. They are very, very long-term um, uh, investments because you simply do not know what the investment world, what the business world is going to look like. So you put your money to work and you go about and live your life. That's the philosophy I try to follow. I get it right sometimes. I get it wrong sometimes. But uh, you, you live to fight another day. Check out the website, cashflowinvestingpro.com. There's also the club. You can join the Cashflow Club, which has a lot more stocks in it that we uh, and the team of analysts continue to review. We're now up to five analysts. I'm very excited to have those, uh, those other individuals join the club. And they're putting out a lot of very, very interesting stocks that I was unable to cover prior to this. So thank you very much, all of you. Please hit the subscribe button. Let me know what you like. Throw a comment down below. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.